We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verses 14 and 15. In our study today, we want to ask the question, are you willing to give your all for him who gave his all for you? Think about that for a minute. Are you willing to give your all for him who gave his all for you? Listen to what Paul said in verse 14 beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I want to begin today by talking about the motivation that we ought to have to serve the Lord. And really we talk about our motivation in the Lord. And Paul, I think, sums it up in verse 14 when he said, The love of Christ constrains or compels us. We talk about what the Bible has to say as it relates to the nature of God. And one of the great attributes of God is His unfailing love. And sometimes maybe it becomes somewhat trite to us to talk about the love of God. And yet over and over again, the Bible declares the love of God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John said, God is love. And then you take that passage and you begin to look at how God demonstrated that love for us. John 3, 16, the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans chapter 5, Paul would say, God commendeth his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then I think about what Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Or the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 4, when he said, but God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us. And so there are many, many scriptures that underscore the declarations of God's love. And then I think about the duration of God's love, the fact that God's love is never-ending. Some of you here today are no doubt wearing a wedding ring. And sometimes we talk about the nature of that wedding ring and how it's circular, underscoring that unceasing love that is to be manifested in that relationship. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 that God has loved us with an everlasting love. To know that there will never be a time when God doesn't love us as, as His people, as His creation. There are a lot of folks in the world today that feel unloved. And some feel unworthy of the love of God. And yet God has manifested that love toward us. He has declared it. And that love is really amazing. To think that God in His goodness will always love us. Now, he may not necessarily like what we do. He may not love our actions, but he loves us nonetheless. And then I think about the depth of God's love. It's hard sometimes to quantify the love of God. 
And yet in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about the love of Christ, which he said passes all knowledge or surpasses all knowledge. Can you really quantify the love of God? Sometimes it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around some of the great attributes of God and the fact that God has loved us to the extent that maybe we ourselves can't fully appreciate or fathom that love. And so Paul talks about the motivation of love and the motivation that we ought to have in the Savior. But then there's a second thing I want you to see, and that is our salvation in the Lord. Listen again to what Paul said. The love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. Think for a minute about what the Lord has given up for us. Paul here said, Christ died for all. Jesus Christ literally emptied himself, willingly coming to planet earth, didn't he? Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 at verse 9. Paul said, you have heard of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet he said, for your sakes, he became poor. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 would say, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he said he emptied himself and took upon himself the role of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, yes, even the death of the cross. In other words, Jesus Christ willingly came and sacrificed all for us, didn't he? Suffered for us. In verse 21, Paul would say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter over in 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about how Christ also suffered for us. That's a personal thing, isn't it? When we talk about what the Lord has done for us, and sometimes maybe we look at it from a blanket viewpoint. We don't think about the personal nature of what the Lord has done for us. He suffered for us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Profound words, and yet words on a personal note. Paul could talk about the love of God. He could talk about the grace of God. He could talk about what the Lord had done for him because in his mind it was a personal thing. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talked about the gospel and in summation he said, Christ died for our sins. He was writing to people that had been living in idolatry and immorality. And some would say, I know they need Christ because of their sinfulness. But Paul's saying, look, Christ died for all of us. Why is that? Because he would say in the Roman letter, in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. He would say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The remedy for sin is what? The blood of Christ. The gospel. So we talk about what the Lord has given up for us and to go back to Calvary and to think that when Jesus was put to death on that cross, it was for us. 
Luke said when they came to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And he said the thieves, the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Jesus was lifted up for us. And then I think the second thing is, we talk about what the Lord has given up for us, but then note if you would what the Lord has given us. Because of what Jesus has done for us, there are two things that we enjoy. Number one, redemption. Redemption through His blood. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Had Jesus not gone to the cross, there would be no remedy for sin, would there? All of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the coming of that ultimate sacrifice. The Hebrew writer said it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And yet Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, according to John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And so Jesus has redeemed us by His blood. The words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Because of the grace and kindness of God, He gave His Son allowed His Son to go to Golgotha to shed His blood for us. John said unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And then there is reconciliation in His body. In verse 18, Paul talks about the reconciliation that has been made possible by Jesus Christ. He said, All things are of God who has reconciled all things to Himself through or by Jesus Christ. Let me ask this question. Where does reconciliation take place? In his body. Paul would say in Ephesians 2.16 that Christ has reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body under God through the cross. So in the body of Christ, that is in the church, we enjoy what? Reconciliation. Before Christ came to earth, the human family was in effect estranged from God. Jesus came as a mediator, didn't he? And he brought the two parties together. God on the one hand, man on the other. And that meeting place is in the body of Christ made possible through the blood of Christ. So when we obey the gospel, when we come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and turn from a life of sin, and then are baptized into Christ, we appropriate the benefits and the blessings of that blood that was shed on Calvary 2,000 years ago. And we are then said to be reconciled. We enjoy a relationship to God. That's why Paul would say in verse 20, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the plea today. Reconciliation in the one body. And so I think about the motivation in the Lord, the salvation in the Lord, and then thirdly, the consecration that we ought to have to the Lord. Listen now to what Paul said, and go back with me and read verses 14 and then verse 15 to really get the impact of what he's saying. For the love of Christ constrains us, 
because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. First of all, the hard part, and that is the crucifixion of self. Listen again to what, he, what Paul said, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's the most difficult part, isn't it? To yield our will to His will, our ways to His ways. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul would write to the churches of Galatia, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified unto me and I unto the world, putting to death self. That's the most difficult part. The song we sang a moment ago, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. To surrender all means to die to self. To yield, as I said a moment ago, our will to His will, our ways to His ways. To acknowledge Him as the Lord and Master of our life. To recognize that there is no will but His will, there are no ways but His ways. You remember Jesus said in the long ago, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We access a relationship to God through Jesus. And Jesus said, if any man wills to do his will, he will know of the doctrine. Can I know what God would have me to do? Yes, I can. Can I live so that God would be pleased with me? Again, the answer is yes. We can be like some of the saints of old who lived lives of faith and obedience to Almighty God. Many, many great people, some of whom have gone before us, have demonstrated lives that said they had surrendered all to the Lord. And then I think about our consecration to the Lord. Making His will a part of my life. I think, first of all, there has to be interest in the Lord's business. And then there has to be an investment in the Lord's business. You remember in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus had stayed behind in Jerusalem, his parents had taken him to the feast, and he said, I must be about my father's business. Well, we, like Jesus, have to be about the father's business. We have to be interested in His work, in His will, in His spiritual business. And then we have to invest in that, in that business. And by that, we simply invest our lives in service to Him who died for us. And listen, when we invest everything that we have in the Lord, we understand it becomes a labor of love, doesn't it? One of the reasons why some are not consecrated as they should be to the cause of Christ is because it's not a labor of love. It's not something that we really want to do. We're not, we really haven't bought in. Every successful, every successful athletic team that I know of has athletes that have bought in to a common cause, a common purpose. 
And they're willing to lay it all on the line. They're willing to do whatever so that they, they might win a championship or they might be successful. By the same token, we talk about the Lord's work, the Lord's business. If the church is going to be what it ought to be, if the church is going to be advanced, advanced for his cause, then each and every one of us have to buy in. And that's 100%. Think for a minute about the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in about verse 20, Paul said, there are many members, yet, he said, but one body. The church is composed of one body, but we have many members. Every single member is important, whether young or old. doesn't matter. We're all important. We all have something that we can do. We have to understand that we can be a part of the work in the body of Christ. I want to read for you a story that Jared shared with me a few days ago. Somewhat of a lengthy story, but I want to read it because I think that it really sums up what I'm trying to say when it comes to being consecrated to the Lord. So I hope you'll bear with me for just a minute as I read this. It begins with these words, imagine this. You're driving home from work next Monday after a long day. You tune in your radio. You hear a blurb about a little village in India where some villagers have died suddenly, strangely, of a flu that has never been seen before. It's not influenza. Three or, three or four people are dead, and it's kind of interesting. And they're sending some doctors over there to investigate it. You don't think much about it, but coming home from church on Sunday, you hear another radio spot. Only they say it's not three villagers, it's 30,000 villagers in the back hills of this particular area of India. It's on TV that night. CNN runs a little blurb. People are heading there from the disease center in Atlanta because this disease strand has never been seen before. By Monday morning when you get up, it's the lead story. It's not just India, it's Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran. Before you know it, you're hearing this story everywhere. And they have now coined it as the mystery flu. The president has made some comment that he and his family are praying and hoping that all will go well over there. But everyone is wondering, how are we going to contain it? That's when the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe. He is closing their borders. No flights from India, Pakistan, or any of the countries where this thing has been seen. And that's why that night you're watching a little bit of CNN before going to bed. Your jaw hits your chest when a weeping woman is translated into English from a French news program. There's a man lying in a hospital in Paris, dying of the mystery flu. It's come to Europe. Panic strikes. As best they can tell, after contracting the disease, you have it for a week before you even know it. Then you have four days of unbelievable symptoms. Britain closes its borders, but it's too late. Southampton, Liverpool, Northampton, and it's Tuesday morning when the president of the U.S. makes the following announcement. Due to a national security risk, all flights to and from Europe and Asia have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry. They cannot come back until we find a cure for this thing. Within four days, our nation has been plunged into an unbelievable fear. People are people, or rather people are wondering, what if it comes to this country? 
Preachers on Tuesday are saying at the scourge, it's the scourge of God. It's Wednesday night. You're at church prayer meeting when somebody runs in from a parking lot and yells, turn on a radio, turn on a radio. While everyone in church listens to a little transistor radio with a microphone stuck up to it, the, the announcement is made. Two women are lying in a Long Island hospital dying from the mystery flu. Within hours, it seems, the disease envelops the country. People are working around the clock trying to find an antidote. Nothing is working. California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida. It's as though it's just sweeping in from the borders. And then all of a sudden, the news comes out. The code has been broken. A cure can be found. A vaccine can be made. It's going to take the blood of somebody who hasn't been infected. And so sure enough, all through the Midwest, through all those channels of emergency broadcasting, Everyone is asked to do one simple thing. Go to your downtown hospital and have your blood analyzed. That's all we ask of you. When you hear the sirens go off in your neighborhood, please make your way quickly, quietly, and safely to the hospitals. Sure enough, when you and your family get down there late on Friday night, there's a long line. And they've got nurses and doctors coming out and pricking fingers and taking blood and putting labels on it. Your spouse and your kids are out there. They take your blood and say, wait here in the parking lot. If we call your name, you can be dismissed and go home. You stand around scared with your neighbors, wondering what on earth is going on. And if this is the end of the world. Suddenly, a young man comes running out of the hospital screaming. He's yelling a name and waving a clipboard. What? He yells again, and your son tugs on your jacket and says, Daddy, that's me. Before you know it, they've grabbed your boy. Wait a minute. Hold on. They say, it's okay, his blood is clean, his blood is pure. We want to make sure it doesn't have the disease. We think he has the right blood type. Five tenths, five tenths minutes later, out come the doctors and nurses, and they're crying and hugging one another. Some are even laughing. The first time you've seen anybody laugh in a week, an old doctor walks up and says, thank you, sir. Your son's blood is perfect. It's clean, it's pure. We can make the vaccine. As word begins to spread all across the parking lot, people are screaming and praying and laughing and crying. But when the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your wife aside and says, may we see you for a moment, we didn't realize the donor would be a minor and we need you to sign a consent form. You begin to sign and then you see the box for the number of pints of blood to be taken is empty. How many pints? That's when the old doctor's smile fades and he says, we had no idea it'd be a little child. We weren't prepared. We need it all. I don't understand. He's my only son. We're talking about the world here. Please, sign. We need to hurry up. Can't you give him a transfusion? If we had clean blood, we would. Will you sign, please? In numb silence, you do. Then they say, would you like to have a moment with him before we begin? Could you walk back? Could you walk back to that room where he sits on the table saying, Daddy, Mommy, what's going on? Could you take his hands and say, Son, 
your mommy and I love you. And we would never let anything happen to you that, did, that just didn't have to be. Do you understand that? When the old doctor comes back in and says, I'm sorry, we've got to get started. People all over the world are dying. Could you leave? Could you walk out while he is saying, Dad, Mom, why have you abandoned me? And then next week when they have the ceremony to honor your son, some folks sleep through it. Some folks don't even bother to come because they have better things to do. Some come with a pretentious smile and just pretend to care. Wouldn't you want to jump up and, and just say, excuse me? My son died for you. Don't you care? Does it mean nothing to you? And here's the punchline. I wonder, is that what God wants to say? My son died for you. Does it mean nothing? Don't you know how much I care? You know, tonight we'll meet back here at 6 o'clock. It might be that you're not planning to be back. I'll be here. Not just because I'm the preacher, but I'll be here because I made that commitment a long time ago. You might not be involved in the work of the church. I'm going to be involved because I made that commitment a long time ago. You think about what the Lord has done for us. And then you ask the question, what have we done for him? The theme of our message today, are you willing to give your all for him who gave his all for you? If you can't give him your all, something's not right. I want to ask you today, are you a Christian? You obeyed the gospel? Have you done what they did on Pentecost Day when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? If you haven't done that, I want you to know that today is the perfect day for you to do that. Paul said today is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you're not what you ought to be as a child of God, I want to encourage you to come home. Come back to the Lord today. John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you give your all for him who gave his all for you as we stand and sing?